Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. There is a common phrase that we use. There's actually two of them. There's one I have in mind this morning. Phrases that we use when we gather around the table to eat a meal. This phrase is what we call that which we do right before we eat. And it could be in a variety of settings, whether at home or if you're in a church setting and we have a meal together, or maybe it's a bigger family meal, whatever the context may be, right before you eat, you do one of two things. You will ask the blessing, right? So somebody will say, so would, would you ask the blessing for our meal? And we understand what that means. We're, we're, we're wanting to say, Thank you to God for how He has blessed us. And we're, we're then asking Him probably some kind of phrase like this. Would, would you use this food to strengthen us? Uh, maybe you might even use the standard phrase to the nourishment of our bodies, right? This is the language that we use when we pray over a meal. But there's another phrase. Some ways it may be more common in that it is more traditional. And it goes way, way back to the time when the church spoke Latin. And it is the phrase, sometimes we may say we're asking the blessing, but you may also ask somebody to say grace. Would you say grace for us? I love the language. Now, unfortunately, I think sometimes when we gather at a table, we say a blessing or we say grace, I think sometimes we're just doing it as a ritual. Even ritualistically, in other words, assuming that if we don't say a blessing or grace, then we're afraid maybe we'll choke on the food, right? In other words, we have a bit of a mystical ritual approach to it, and I'm afraid sometimes we don't think much about it. But to say grace over your food, it is a profound theological assertion that you are making, though most of us may not think this way. I mean, think about what a meal is. A meal represents one of the most basic things you do every day to sustain your life. Without eating, we're not living, right? And so to say grace over a meal is in essence to say something like this. Even though I might have paid for this food, even though I or someone else may have prepared this food, the only reason why we can take fork, put it to the plate, and put it in our mouths is because God in His 
grace has given it to us. To say grace, even over the most basic of elements of life, then sends a larger message. It is a way of saying, then God in His grace is responsible for every aspect of my life. Perhaps after the service, when you go wherever you go to eat, maybe think a little more carefully about when you say, grace... I mean, I mean, it really is a profound proclamation because it is something that is so essential to our identity as believers. To speak of grace is to speak of that which captures the essence of what God did to save us. It is a way of saying everything that we have and are in Christ, it's not because we were better than anybody or smarter or more valuable. It's not because we did our part and God did His part. Grace is essential to the gospel because it recognizes the only reason why we are saved people is because God, of His own sovereign will and work, saved us. That's it. It's the only reason. Grace is not just, though, essential for our understanding of the gospel. Grace, then, has great bearing on our lives, even as believers, I don't stop needing God's grace just because I get saved. That in fact, the New Testament clearly articulates the language of grace as being that which is an ongoing work of God. Not to save me over and over again, but but God will continue to bestow upon me that which I do not deserve, an unmerited favor, granting what I need, that I might do that which is necessary for life and godliness... God in His grace provides all that is needed in order to live out the faith that He has given to me. This morning, we're doing two things. One, we're starting a new part of Romans. We're five weeks in the first two verses. We will not be five weeks in verses three through eight. What I wanted to say is it's going to be six. That's what I wanted to say, but we're not going to do that either, all right? Because really, verses one and two are are profound and foundational transitional statements about the essence of the demands of the gospel. That is, those who have been transformed by what Paul described in 11 chapters, it is only fitting then that the, the result, the outcome, what would, that would produce in us would be that we yield our lives as a living sacrifice, fully, wholly devoted to Christ, avoiding the corruption of the world, Submitting to the transforming work of the gospel through the renewing of our minds. Being able to discern then the will of God to do that which is good and acceptable and pleasing to Him. Those two verses really provide us what is essential instruction for living out the gospel. So now Paul is going to add a bit more flesh to this. He's going to give us a bit more specifics. The rest of Romans uh, is going to lay out for us then, what, what then does that look like? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? What is a life wholly devoted unto Christ? As we turn to verses 3 through 8, we find that Paul's very first application, the very next thing that he turns to, it, it's, not, it's not so much a brand new idea unconnected to verses 1 and 2, Unfortunately, there are some commentators who say just that. I find Paul doing something very intentional and on purpose and clearly connected with the text before. 
After giving us in verse 2 this, this profound instruction that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Paul's next instruction to us is that we continue to think about the way that we think, and in particular, that we think about the way that we think about ourselves when we think about ourselves. Write all that down, all right? As Paul moves now into this next section, he, he, he very much has in mind that, that the fully devoted life is one that thinks properly about himself or herself and our relationship to one another in the church. So, so this morning, as, as we turn our attention to these verses, verses 3 through 8, we find that Paul continues then, in essence, with this theme of thinking carefully, of bringing the gospel to bear on our lives, and he does so in a specific way, that as we think about who we are, as we think about our relationship with the church, that our thoughts continue to be dominated by God's grace. Specifically, as, as we then try and flesh this out, and if you want to take notes, you'll be able to, though we'll only get to one point, because in just a few moments, we're going to gather around a table. We're going to gather around a table, and we're going to say grace. As we remember that, that ultimate expression of God's grace to us in the sacrifice of Christ to prepare ourselves for that, I, I think this is a fitting text, and in particular this first verse that we'll kind of wrestle with for a few moments. But in verses 3 through 8, Paul simply is admonishing the church in Rome that, that this fully devoted life to Christ is one that thinks rightly about himself, the individual thinks rightly about himself or herself, and about the relationship that they have with the church. And so, you know, if we're going to live fully devoted lives to Christ, if we're going to understand the nature of our service being living sacrifices to Christ, if we're going to get that, if we're going to understand that, then we need to think carefully about who we are and think carefully about our relationship then with the church. And so, over the next few weeks, this is what we're going to look at. How do we think rightly then? How do we do this? What does it look like to think rightly, to have this renewed mind, transformed mind, Well, I think this text would encourage us to view our lives through three different lenses. We think rightly of ourselves when we view ourselves through these three lenses. Number one, and the only one we'll look at this morning, we think rightly when we view ourselves through the lens of God's grace. Of God's grace. Notice what he says beginning in verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, the language of grace, I think, really does permeate these verses. You'll you'll note the language of grace shows up again uh, in verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that has been given to us. In other words, the idea that what we have has been given to us by God seems to be an essential feature here for Paul. Now, I do want to point this out. I, I, I want you to notice a bit of the symmetry parallelism of how Paul started verse 1 and how he starts verse 3. 
And he begins by saying, for I say through the grace given to me. To me, that sounds an awful lot like verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Again, they're not exactly the same thing, but you'll notice that Paul's foundation for understanding our life as a living sacrifice is the same kind of foundation. Though in verse 1 he talks about mercy, and in verse 3 he talks about grace, I think nonetheless Paul is kind of establishing ourselves in the same reality. God's sovereign grace given to us. You should know when Paul begins a verse by saying, For I say, when he says, By the grace given to me, he's referring about a particular kind of grace. What I mean by that is when he says, The grace given to me, he is saying, By the fact that God, as an act of his grace, has made me an apostle of the church. You'd have to look at a few other cross-references. Ephesians 4 in particular is one where Paul uses similar kinds of language. Even the beginning of Romans, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul understands his apostleship is an act of God's grace. So when he uses that phrase, for by the grace given to me, that, that is kind of a, there's a subtext there. What I'm about to say to you, I'm saying to you because I'm an apostle. And that means what I'm about to say to you is a command and you are obligated to do it. I know in our culture and day, we don't think much of that kind of authority, right? We don't care much. We tend to resist that kind of authority. Nonetheless, this is what he means. This is, this is not an option. What I'm about to say is not for the spiritually elite among you. It's not for those who are a little bit more mature. It's not for those who really love God. And so for those of you who just kind of love God, you're off the hook here. When he says, for I say by the grace given to me, to who? To almost everybody in the room? By the grace given to me, I say, to those who are really super spiritual, he says, to everyone who is among you. Everyone. Anybody want to take a guess at what everyone means in Greek? Would everyone like to take a guess at what everyone means in Greek? All right. It's the same thing as in English. You know, you know, but what's our tendency? Whenever we hear the word everyone, we often think everyone but me, right? Yeah, every one of you, right? We read it literally like Paul does, as if he weren't including himself in the sentence. And so, that's right, you people, you people, you're looking next to you, aren't you? You're looking in front of you. I hope they listen to the preacher this morning. I hope they pay attention. Listen, let me just get a little bit of of instruction here. If you came in here this morning thinking that there are other people in here who need to hear it more than you do, you need to take another listen to what the Bible says about you. If you're thinking, you know what, I hope so-and-so hears this. I hope they get something out of this message. You may want to listen to it online again because God's got you in the crosshairs, all right? For I say... Based on my authority as an apostle, everyone among you. Isn't it interesting, though, that when Paul refers to himself as an apostle, he does so with the language of grace? Why is Paul an apostle? Because he's super smart? Because he's really charismatic and intelligent? Because he's really gifted? Because he's going to be a great visionary leader? Is this why God called him to be an apostle? Why did God call Paul to be an apostle? Because he did. Wait, pastor, that's kind of a circular argument there, right? 
You're going to have to chew on it then. I don't know what to tell you. In other words, Paul, God doesn't do any of that because Paul is going to be really beneficial to the kingdom. We like to think that way. God calls people who are going to be really beneficial to the kingdom. The truth is none of us are beneficial to the kingdom unless God by his grace transforms us from dead, hard-hearted rebels to those who are alive to God in Christ Jesus. The only reason why Paul is an apostle worthy of anything is because God by his grace made him that. That's it. It's by the grace given to me and then notice though what his instruction is, the main command here. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but, and this is, this is by the way the main clause, but to think soberly. Some of you might have the language of think with sober judgment or even sound judgment. In the original language, it's a bit of a play on words. The phrase, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, It's a way of saying, so don't think super thoughts about yourself. Don't think super inflated thoughts about yourself. But when you think about yourself, don't think super thoughts about yourself. Think sober thoughts about yourself. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Quite frankly, I think what he means there is don't put yourself at the center of all things. And so let me say something to a culture uh, that I think is a bit off the rails Uh, you know, when it comes first, we definitely understand there are those people out there who think more highly of themselves than they ought to, right? In other words, we we associate this with raging pride uh, or arrogance. Uh, It it is the person who always has to be the center of the conversation. Uh, These are the one-upping people. Do you know what I'm talking about, right? In other words, you get in a conversation and you tell a story and they've always got to have a worse story or a better story or a more dramatic story. And if you're thinking, I don't know anybody like that, uh-oh, all right, okay, you may, that may be you. Uh, just, that may be you. So there's that. There are those who have this overinflated view of themselves and their lives. You talk about their kids, their kids are doing better. You know, whatever it may be. Or your kids are doing bad, their kids are doing worse. You know, whatever it may be, there is this sense of making self. But let me tell you another way that we think more of ourselves than we ought, and that's those folks who are obsessed with what they think is their low self-esteem. Did you know you can be obsessed with yourself and think too lowly of yourself and this is just the same thing as thinking too highly of yourself more than you ought? If somebody is always thinking about themselves, if somebody is always wallowing in what would be this sense of self-pity, this sense of self-doubt, this constant focus on self. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, think of yourself more highly. He means elevating you for you to be in the center of all things. And instead, he says, think soberly. Think appropriately. Think reasonably. Think rightly about yourself. And though we'll We'll flesh this out more next week. He then adds to that, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. In other words, Paul's concern for us is that as we think about ourselves, we think about ourselves in light of God's good grace toward us, in light of the way God has framed the boundaries of our lives, in light of the way God has gifted us or equipped us, how God saved us, the body into which God has placed us as a church. Think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Don't don't think that when we come into this place, we think in terms of what are they going to do for me? What is the product they're going to give to me that I can consume? Don't think of ourselves that way. Think of ourselves as those who have been 
saved and transformed by this precious grace of God, those who have been given a measure of faith by God. Again, I'll explain that next week. For now, I think Paul's instruction to us is helpful. Paul himself, thinking of his own life through the lens of God's grace, I think you and I need to have make sure we have this realistic assessment that as we think about ourselves, we think about ourselves through the lens of God's grace. Now, this is going to matter. Paul's then going to talk about the nature of giftedness. He's going to talk about the nature of your relationship and my relationship with each other. For Paul, church is not an institution. It's not something out there. It is something among us. It is not something that you go to. It is something that you are. It is a, it is a body. It is not a production. Paul, Paul's, I think, going to give us a really good corrective here uh, in verses 3 through 8 on what the church is and then what our role is in connection with one another. But I think these verses, though, are appropriate and it's, uh, to stop here. To stop here as we now take the Lord's Supper together. Because quite frankly, I can think of no other symbol, no other meal, no other illustration that helps us think rightly about ourselves and a relationship to the church better than taking of the elements together. Because when we take of the bread, that reminds me. It reminds me that there was one whose body was broken for me. In other words, as as it gets passed among you, you pick up that bread, you, you should think these things about yourself. I deserve the full weight of God's wrath to be poured out on me. But it wasn't. And it won't be. Because the body of Christ was broken for me. The body of Christ was pierced for our transgressions. When I take and I eat of the bread, it forces me to think soberly. Again, He did not save me because I was of greater value to the kingdom. He saved me because I was dead in my trespasses and sin. To take of the bread is again to remind myself in the holy transaction, in the holy equation of salvation, it's not God does His part, I do my part, and we get saved. It is I am a sinner unable to do anything, and God does everything. The bread tells me that. When I take the cup, that which stands for the shed blood of Jesus, I am reminded that that it's not just that Jesus could be whipped or, or beaten or somehow disciplined for my sin. It's not like God could send him to some kind of holy time out or ground him, right? To shed his blood, which the law required, that blood would be shed in order to atone for sin. But it isn't that he could just get cut and bleed for a minute. To say that his blood was shed is to say it was shed to the point of death. Sin requires death, either yours or his. 
when I take the cup, I am reminded Jesus not only bore God's wrath, but to the point of death as my substitute so that I might know the saving grace of God. By the way, you're also going to do this together, right? I don't know if you've ever noticed, if you've ever thought this matters. But as, as we take of the elements, you notice you don't come front so that I, by virtue of my office, can bestow upon you the grace of God through the elements. We don't do that. We pass it among ourselves. I mean, the deacons will come and they will pass it. Some of that is propriety. Some of that is also convenience. But you will take that plate and you will take bread and you will pass it and the person next to you will take that same bread because it is a reminder that if they have more money or less money, it doesn't matter. If they have more education or less education than you, it doesn't matter. If they dress better than you or less than you, it doesn't matter. If they come from a different social class than you, it doesn't matter. If you have more influence and they have less, it doesn't matter. The only reason why you've been saved by, by God from His wrath is because Christ did it all. We come together around a common table because we are common sinners in need of God's uncommon grace. Grace extended to us that all of us need to an equal degree. You do recognize nobody here needs two pieces of bread and nobody here needs a half a piece. No one needs more Jesus and no one here needs less. Hell doesn't burn hotter for those who are a little bit better, but yet still lost or worse. In other words, judgment is judgment and salvation is salvation. And these elements remind us that this is God's grace. So we gather together to take a meal. When we gather, we say grace. And I pray that as you take each of these elements, you would say grace to acknowledge that who you are and what you are is because God and His goodness towards you has given you all that you need. And this is how we think of ourselves. At this time, I would ask the deacons to come forward. And as they come forward, I would invite all who are believers in Jesus Christ to gather around the table with us. If you know Christ as your Savior, if you are in good standing with this church, then I would ask that, that you, you worship with us. I would ask that you reflect then on this death of Christ before we pass these elements, I do want to take a moment. It'll be a moment of prayer, just where you are, that you would prepare your own heart then as we take of these elements together, that we do so in faith and obedience, and there would just be a moment of silent prayer, preparing then to take of the bread, to take of the cup, that then as we do take these elements, we would think soberly of ourselves. So I invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and spend some time in prayer. I will close us, and then we will serve the elements this morning.